Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Well, we spent part of last hour talking about uh, the good news story about the employment numbers for the Hamilton area and uh, how we are now ranked second, I guess, when it comes to uh, the best places to go looking for a job uh, in the country. However, uh, we're still not number one. There's still an awful lot of work to do. And in this segment of uh, Hotspot Hamilton, uh, we're going to talk about some of the challenge this uh, challenges rather that the city is facing. Uh, one of them is housing, certainly. We're going to talk about that after 10.30 this morning. But the other is, is let's face it, it's poverty. And I know that, that that's a hot-button issue for an awful lot of people. And uh, it's something that is with us. It's not unique to Hamilton, certainly, but it's uh, something that we need to, to talk about, we need to analyze, and we need to find some solutions for uh, to lift people up. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions about that very subject, about poverty and exactly what it is and, and the uh, the implications that it can have. And we're going to talk about that with our first panel today. Uh, so pleased to have us uh, with us in studio. First of all, Carol Cowan, the Executive Director of Mission Services. Great to have you here, Carol. Thank you. Good to be here, Bill. Great Thank to you. And uh, Todd Bender, of course, our good friend from City Kids. Uh, great to have you here, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Good morning. And, uh, of course, Tom Cooper from the Social Planning and Research Council and, of course, the uh, Chair of the Poverty Roundtable uh, here in the city as well. Let's let's maybe start with, with you, Tom, if we could, and talk about the problem itself. And uh, and you know, past city councils and past mayors, of course, have have come up with initiatives like uh, like poverty roundtables and, and forums on this sort of thing. Uh, the accusation by some is that look, we're doing an awful lot of talk, but we're not really moving the yardsticks here. We're not really accomplishing uh, the goal of trying to eradicate poverty right now. Maybe we could talk a little bit about about where we are and where we've been, and and, and are we making progress? I think that's a good point, Bill, because if you take the long view, uh, I think we are indeed making progress here in Hamilton. And I think Hamiltonians are some of the most generous people anywhere in this country, and, and we certainly see them step up uh, helping people in crisis. But we also know there's a, a strong role to be played by, by local and provincial and federal governments in reducing and, and eliminating poverty. Over the last 20 years, uh, we've seen social assistance rates stagnate, and, and certainly a large number of people in this community, almost 50,000, rely on provincial social assistance for their main source of income. Those rates are woefully inadequate. Uh, they're not enough to meet basic needs such as housing or food or utilities, let alone being able to participate in, in our community. We also know there's lots of people out there, actually 29,335 by the last count, who are going to work every single day, and they're not earning enough at their jobs to uh, pull themselves or their families out of poverty. They're Hamilton's working poor. So it really is a systemic challenge, but I think we've done some really interesting things in this community. And just a couple of weeks ago, we saw City Council pass unanimously a $50 million investment in, in social and affordable housing. And I'm sure your next panel will get into the, some of the details around that. Mm -hmm. But that really is groundbreaking for a local government to put that kind yeah. of investment in, in poverty reduction. So we're sending a strong message to the other levels of government. We've seen over the last six months particularly, the provincial government come out with uh, Bill 148, which will uh, improve standards for work, uh, improve the minimum wage to, to $15 an hour by 2019. Uh, we see uh, certainly uh, Pharmacare uh, um, for, for youth under the age of 25, which is something really important. And uh, we have a basic income pilot running in, in, in our community. And we talked about this last week, Bill. It's certainly not perfect, but I think it is 
again, a social policy test that, that will help uh, a number of people in this community over the next three years. Part of the problem, I would think, Carol, when you look at this is uh, it, there's no simple solution because it's, a, it's, it's not a simple problem. It's a very complex problem. It's not just a matter of, well, let's bring more jobs and then everybody will be working. It's not just, hey, let's raise the minimum wage and, and everybody will be happy. There's, there's a lot more to this because you and, and, and Todd in particular with the programs you guys are doing here in the city, you're dealing with this. You're on the ground with these people and you see who they are and what they are. And, and there is no one-size-fits-all solution to what's going on here. No, that's, that's right, Bill. There isn't. Um, we see so many people in our food bank with... Um, Many of them are, um, you know, systemic issues of poverty, but also we see many of them who are the working poor um, that Tom was speaking about earlier, that people just cannot make ends meet. And it's really hard to talk about poverty without talking about housing because, you know, there is so much pressure on people, um, on you know, to pay higher rents. Um, the cost of housing has increased so much. The cost of utilities have increased so much. And so we, peop- we see people who are constantly having to try and determine whether they're going to pay the rent this month or they're going to buy groceries this month. So our, our food banks are teaming with families who are coming and um, seeking support for, for food. You know, it's one of the, the very basic things. Um, we also have, um, we're, uh, we're situated uh, next door to Kathy Weaver School, which mm-hmm. is about 700 children in that school. Many of them are living in, in poverty. So we have, um, they have an after-school program, and we supplement that program by providing a nutritious meal for the children after school every day, five days a week. So those children are being fed um, but their families are not necessarily being fed. You know, they're going home to, often they're going home to inadequate food. You know, it, during the school year, when kids are in school, they're often they're being fed in the meal programs that are happening, breakfast programs, um, backpack programs. But during the summer, the, you know, there's, there's a lot more pressure on families to feed their children, to feed their families, and therefore there's also a lot more pressure on food banks. And, you know, I've been, as I was sitting here listening to what Tom was saying, I was thinking to myself that, you know, one of the things about those of us that work in social services is that, you know, we're often so busy doing the work that we fail to, um, you know, to educate the community about what is really going on. And so, you know, we, some of, some of that is, what we're trying to do now, you know, is raise awareness because poverty is an issue that belongs to all of us. It doesn't just affect the people that are living in poverty. You know, if it affects your neighbor, it, it will ultimately affect you as well. Well, it has to because it's a community-wide problem too. I think we're over the idea that some people might have had that, oh, that, that only happens in that neighborhood or that neighborhood or that neighborhood. Uh, it's it's probably happening in there. I mean, there's, po- there's poverty in, well, I live in Ancaster and there's poverty there. Uh, you know, with the, right. we had our food drive a couple of months ago on the Saturday, and uh, we dropped stuff off, of course, as many people did in Ancaster, and they were very generous. And I remember talking to the organizers. I said, this is great. I said, where's that food going to go? She said, it's gone. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it stayed right here in this community. <laughs> there, uh, And, you know, we covered a number of stories over the last couple of years, for instance, about hydro rates. That was a very hot topic mm-hmm. issue, in, in, in not just in the Hamilton community, but others, about people that had their hydro shut off because they couldn't pay the bill. And, and you know what was interesting is we talked to our friends at Global who covered this right across the province. 99.9% of the people that were being victimized by that, they were working. 
They they weren't breaking bringing money That's in. Right. They just didn't have enough money to pay the mortgage, to pay the bills, to pay the groceries, etc. And 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 those were the stories we heard of. Those there's a probably umpteen number of other stories like that that didn't make the news or people that are in that mm-hmm. situation right now. And and it's up to guys like you at Mission Services and and City Kids, obviously, Todd. Uh, to pick up the pieces and say, okay, what can we do? I mean, you're you're the one knocking on the door and saying, let's let's see what we can do to give you guys some hope. Yeah, I mean, you know, just listening. Uh, for, first off, I mean, Bill, you know this. I'm an idealist, always have been, and you know, after 25 years of being in the city and seeing the city change, uh, to say I'm still an idealist, I think, is is a hopeful thing. I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, what I've been seeing the last little while in our city with the, um, the amount of things that are happening to reduce poverty, it's it's pretty exciting. But sometimes, I, you know, I, I often take a philosophical approach. I'm more of a practitioner than I than I am a you know, in terms of the educated piece on the on the poverty. I, when I came to Hamilton at 20, I never, you know, I didn't even understand poverty, even know what it was. And I think to some extent that's probably true now because it's so complex. But sometimes, Bill, I wonder, just from a philosophical point of view, as I'm getting to know families um, over the years, and I think everybody would agree that uh, folks are so resilient. They're absolutely resilient. And, I, and sometimes I wonder if we're, if we're asking the wrong question about poverty. I think you've said it so many times this morning, Poverty is complex. You know, one of the things that confounds me continually is that nobody seems to really be able to agree on really what poverty is, because I think it is very subjective Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, when I think about some of the people that first moved to the Hamilton community um, as new immigrants, I I hear the stories about how they moved, their parents moved with nothing, the Italian community, uh, uh, Portuguese community, so many different people moved here with nothing, and they they made a life for themselves. And now they, they, they grew successful, but they were never trapped really in, in that poverty piece. You know, when I see the kids and the youth and the, and the folks that we work with, one of the things I wonder that we don't talk enough about when it comes to poverty is just the lack of opportunity. I entirely agree that, that the housing situation has to be solved. I got to tell you, this is the first time in 25 years I've been in Hamilton where I have just last week I'm visiting families in, in social housing. And families move a lot in our city. They transition, but for the first time, they're moving out of the city because what they're saying is, Todd, there is no opportunity for us here. Now, I know what the paper is saying. I know that you know we're number two ranked for, for, for jobs, and, but, but people don't perceive that there's opportunity. And so they're moving. This family's moving to Peterborough because they're just looking for a better life. Before, they would move to someplace else within Hamilton, but now that's beginning to change. So I'm wondering, when I deal with, with kids and youth, it's about this idea that you know, we want to inspire big dreams, that they can reach their full potential. But if they look around their community and they don't feel that there's any opportunity for them to achieve their dreams, um, how are housing, jobs, all those things, education, all those things that we talk about um, will, could be sitting there. But if somebody doesn't believe that they have the opportunity to achieve or that they can achieve, mm-hmm. um, I, those are things I think often don't get talked about. And Bill, the other thing I would say too is that I wonder is not just solving these, these issues that um, multi-level of governments that we need to, to solve, but um, it's about community. And I think one of the things that I, I find interesting is a lot of new Canadian families, new immigrants that come here, it, there, there's something different about, about them. And often we see within three to five years, many of them are able to get themselves out of poverty because they have this community surrounding them um, and the way they do things, uh, you know, just surrounded by multi-generations, community that are supporting them. And when I visit a lot of our families who are second, third, fourth generation uh, uh, kids that have been living, some of them that who have inherited this kind of poverty mentality, mm-hmm. um, there's no community <coughs> around them. They don't, they don't have the support of family members that can actually help lift them out. 
Um, but the idealism and the idealist in me says, but I see it changing. I see good things happening, and I'm, and I'm optimistic. How do you create that support, though? I mean, because you, you see this, and we talk about childhood poverty, and some people are going to roll their eyes, like, come on, you know, kids, I mean, what do you mean childhood poverty? But they're often victimized by this. And, you know, when, when their parents, if, if they're from a two-parent family, and that's not always the case, of course, are, are out of work or working two or three jobs to try to make ends meet, uh, those are the kids that, as you say, don't get enough nutrition. Those are the kids that uh, are maybe latchkey kids. There is no adult supervision. There's nobody to look after them, nobody for them to talk to, etc., like that. Uh, which is basically, I know, why City Kids was born in the first place, to give these guys hope. And that's one of the things that you've been preaching right from day one. Do you see how much of a difference <coughs> programs like that make? Oh, absolutely. In I, fact, I know one, by the way, one of your other mantras is stay in school, too, and I know that you preach that message as well. Well, all these things are important. Education's important. The, the idea, I mean, all the things we talk about that we know from a practical level to, to alleviate the, those, what I, what I would say, the, the explicit things of poverty. But one of the things that we discovered that really wasn't, was surprised us is that kids are entirely resilient. We actually discovered, Bill, that it's not us that are going to break the cycle of poverty for kids. We, we can't. They will do it for themselves. As long as they believe that there's opportunity and hope ahead of them. Kids, people, we, I mean, the spirit of humanity is indomitable. It's amazing when people have hope to believe that tomorrow could possibly be better than today. The things and the odds that people will face and achieve and rise above is phenomenal. But if you remove hope, if you remove this, this idea that no matter what I do, it, it's fleeting. No matter what I do, I can't get ahead. You do that enough, and you get into a downward spiral of despair. And, you know, we talk about mental illness. We talk about all these things, and whether it's the tail wagging the dog or how it works, but it's all interconnected, and this is where the complexity comes in. And hope is such an intangible thing. I always joke when I talk about hope, I, I, uh, I get teased about, like, uh, Big Bang Theory and Sheldon talking about the social sciences, but uh, <laughs> hope is real. And when I yeah, but it's it's one of the key <laughs> elements to this. But but to your point though, Carol, uh, it's it, I'm not going to say it's easy to instill hope in a, in a ten or a twelve year old, but at least the, the the structure is there to say, look, it, we can help you. You know, go through school. Talk to somebody who's 35 or 40, and and you see those faces at your door. Uh, and they've been there, and, and maybe four or five years ago, maybe four or five months ago, they had a good job and they've lost it, or they were, they, you know, or their 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 relationship broke up, and now they're finding themselves in a different financial circumstance. Uh, it's a lot harder to provide hope for somebody like that. Hope hope is one of those things that when I when Todd was talking about, it, I was thinking about that. Um, you know, hope is being able to see yourself in a different place or doing something different than what you're doing right now, and People are often, when they are living in poverty, they're often disconnected from their communities. They're disconnected from families. They're con disconnected from, you know, just the normal day-to-day -day things. If you can't afford rent, you chances are you can't afford um, a phone. You can't afford transportation. So you're very isolated and you're, you're left, you're very disenfranchised. You're, you're just left um, alone. And I think that, you know, what we try to do at mission services, and I and I think what City Kids tries to do as well is to engage people. So it, that's not always an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Engaging people who are disengaged, you know, can be um, seem like a very huge thing. And often, when people get to be in their you know a past um, teenagehood and into their young adulthood and middle adulthood, often that's when we do see really serious issues emerge like addictions and mental illnesses um, because 
you know, the opposite of hope is despair, and despair creates that in, mm-hmm. in folks, and people give up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then, it, you know, then there's a, an ongoing cycle that just creates um, more and more unwellness, and people's lives are shortened. They're, um, you know, they're certainly... Um, it's hard to reinstill hope. So we offer, uh, you know, addiction programs, but those, and to help folks, and, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, different ways that we try to engage people. Some uh, we've had, some of it we use food to try and engage people, and that's sometimes why we have a community meal. You know, it's a way of engaging people. It's about bringing people together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about, Well, it's it's that sense of community that Todd was talking about. There's there's so much more that we need to talk about here, but we have to uh, break it off at this point and do a short break. Uh, Thank you all for being part of this, and thank you all for the Mm -hmm. great work that you and your organizations are doing. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We continue with our Hot Spot Hamilton segment, and uh, we're talking about poverty in the last uh, segment, but I want to get back into uh, a point that uh, Tom Cooper had brought up, and that, of course, is about housing, and especially affordable housing. Uh, when you bring up the topic of housing, obviously, many of us think, yeah, boy, the prices are ridiculous, so we're going to have to put more of a down payment down. What about people that can't even afford to put a roof over their head? Uh, you can't lift yourself out of poverty. You can't get your kids uh, for a better future if you don't have a place to, in which to live, and, and that becomes a bit of a problem. And we're going to talk about that with our panel in this segment. Uh, joining us is uh, Renee Wetzlar from the Social Planning and Research Council. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Bill. Sean McKeegan, Director of Men's Services at Mission Services. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, Bill, thank you. Good. And uh, Chad Collins, who is the counselor for Ward 5 out in the East End. Chad, good to have you with us here today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let, let me start with you because as mm-hmm. long as I've known you on council now, you've, you've been a member of the housing board or were in ba- very heavily involved in social housing and housing mm-hmm. stock. And you and I have had many conversations about that on the show Maybe just to kind of set the tone for the conversation, give us a uh, an, an idea of the status of where we are with affordable housing right now. Because to your credit and, and to the city council's credit, they've come up with some pretty innovative ideas to address this problem. Yeah, we've seen a lot of changes um, with the housing landscape over the last number of years. And if you go back to 2008, just prior to the recession that we were through, there were, I believe, 3,700 or 3,800 uh, households on the housing wait list. And since that time, we've never recovered. That list has grown almost exponentially over that time. And currently, there's 6,200 households uh, on that list. And so council, over the last number of years, obviously recognizes this as a priority. Um, you've covered our budget process. You know that all, all departments have, um, you know, they're either in at 1% or less. And um, housing and transit have been those two that have exceeded those targets. And, of course, that's in addition to the, the $50 million that council just announced uh, a couple of weeks ago as it relates to... Let me ask you about yep. that. Where, where's that money going to go? That, that's a big number, but it's kind of an abstract number for a lot of people. Yep. Uh, break break it down for us. How How is that going to help? $10 million will be invested into the Indigenous community, so they will self-direct those funds over the next decade, so on average about a, a million a year. $20 million will be invested into City Housing Hamilton, and so as you know, Bill, uh, the city owns uh, 7,000 rental units mm-hmm. across the city. Small, small uh, portion of that is market rent, but the vast majority of those are affordable housing units. Of that $20 million, $10 million will be invested into the maintenance, so the repair and upgrade, many of those units. That's been a huge problem. Yes. You've talked yep. to us about that on the program before. It's great to say, hey, we have units. Yep. Uh, when, I know when we started that conversation, you'd say, yeah, but a lot of them are uninhabitable. Correct. Yeah. So there's the 10 million will go towards maintenance and it will help us with the, those units that, um, don't have anyone in them today because they're so expensive to fix. And so 
for us, that investment is key in terms of improving the standards of those people who are currently our tenants. The other $10 million for city housing will be invested into new units. And so you've covered the city motor uh, situation. Yeah. So we're looking at that as a, as a location. We have uh, 191 York, Jamesville, of course, you've covered in the past in terms of what's going on on the waterfront. And so we'll be investing uh, $10 million into new units. The other $20 million will be uh, available for other local housing providers. So there are about 40 of them locally. City housing's the largest and, and the biggest. And so um, the other monies will be invested into other providers who are facing the same challenges as city housing as it relates to maintenance and repair, as well as looking for opportunities with those other housing providers to provide new units to get at that 6,200 uh, wait list issue that I spoke of. Renee, we throw the uh, term affordable housing around a lot. Uh, the work you guys do at the, uh, the SPRC, that's, that's a pretty uh, subjective term, affordable, isn't it? It really depends on the individual. Yeah, and it's interesting because when we, we talk about affordable housing, it does get thrown back uh, sometimes at us around, uh, you know, what is affordable or uh, housing affordability is all relative. Well, of course it is all relative. It's relative to income. And uh, the issues that we see, of course, is that uh, incomes have not kept up with, uh, you know, inflation and with the growth of the, growth of the housing market. So, uh, you know, this strategy is certainly a really great step in that direction, not just a step, it's a, a a great leap in that direction, um, but we still have issues around uh, folks not having uh, a living wage. Uh, we're really excited that the minimum wage is going up, certainly, but uh, it's still not enough, and that's what Tom certainly uh, has talked about on the show and today as well, I'm sure. So affordability, you know, when I hear it from a realtor, you know, with a big question mark around it, I, I get a little uh, concerned because I think we need a dialogue in this community to make sure when we talk about the housing sector that we talk about it in relationship to income and also in relationship to poverty. Uh, you're part of the social safety net, Sean. Uh, when when people find themselves in, in, well, the word crisis, I think, is very apt in this situation, uh, who have changing circumstances and say, look, at you know, times are tight. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they've been downsized. Uh, or maybe they're working. Uh, you know, we just talked about the number of people that are working in contract situations right now, but they don't have benefits, etc. It's, do I pay the hydro bill? Do I pay this? Uh, mission services has to, to be there for them. And let me, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the programs and some of the things that you do at mission services. Uh, when somebody knocks on the door and says, look at it, I'm, I'm not living on the street, not yet anyway, but I, 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 I can see it down the road. What am I supposed to do? How, how do you help? How, what do you, how do you respond to that? Well, you, you respond to that in a number of different ways. And, and it's, it's important, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, because while we do serve uh, the homeless population and individuals that are experiencing episodes of homelessness, you really want to get out in front of this. And Renee and I had this conversation briefly before we came in. We, we talk about both access to resources and education of the resources that are available. So we do, we want people to see us before they find themselves in that situation, as do many of our partners across the city. We want people to come and see us if they feel like they are at risk, if they feel that their housing situation is precarious, if they feel that they are experiencing uh, or find themselves in a situation where they don't know how to make ends meet, because there are resources available. There are organizations that want to be able to help. But you do, you have to be able to get out in front of those things before before, uh, before before they land like that. And I'd, I'd said this before, and you used the word social safety net, and we've seen this over the last 20 years. I've described this in a, f in a few different instances, and perhaps not this one, 
But the social safety net has, in many respects, uh, ended up feeling more like a social safety mat. And that's where... With the hard landing. With the hard landing. So it used to be where people would would fall off or find themselves in a situation where they weren't able to hold on, and and they found themselves in a difficult spot. Uh, That social safety net provided a bit of a soft landing, allowed them to, you know, get up and and walk back out and find themselves uh, back where they wanted to be. The social safety mat is different. It, you're talking about that one-inch piece of foam on the uh, on the concrete floor, and if you hit that, it hurts. So it's harder to get up. It sure is. And you know, interestingly, last week I got a phone call from a police officer um, just calling because they're seeing so many tent cities springing up yet again across the city, and it seems to be getting worse. And it speaks to the acuity of the situation. And um, you know, I, I really had to point him back to uh, you know the network that we have in this city. Uh, you know to say to him, we don't have a solution at this point in time. I think he had heard, you know, the uh, motion that went through around tiny homes and the work that we're doing in the community around trying to build some new type of uh, housing forum to build some innovation, innovative options into this work. But, um, you know, the collaboration is key uh, because our net is so thin um, and we really need to look at alternatives even in the built forum for housing to give people more options. How do you bring others into the tent here, Chad? I mean, you know, the $50 million is a great initiative, mm-hmm. and city deserves an awful lot of credit for, for moving that. But that's not going to solve the problem, those 6,000 families that you talked about right now. Uh, there's probably not enough money in Queen's Park for you to solve the problem either, because while you're waving your hand and saying, hey, what about Hamilton? So is Toronto, so is Windsor, so is every other city in the province. Private sector's got to get involved in this, and they haven't always been at the table. How do you how do you get them in here? How do you get them involved in in this process? Well, it means I think, as Renee just mentioned, uh, looking at some planning tools um, that uh, facilitate new types of construction that maybe we hadn't looked at before. And so, the tiny home scenario, we talked about inclusionary zoning in terms of requiring developers to uh, to build into their developments, um, whether it's on the waterfront or in the core or elsewhere in the city, uh, affordable housing units, and those units certainly then would be priced at a different price point than the the market uh, units that they're they're either selling or renting out we're sort of in a in a gray area though in terms of we're not we're part of that Toronto market so that, mm-hmm. you know our planning staff have certainly said those tools are something we can use in the future we're just not at the price point right now where we can require developers to do some of those creative things because um, as you'll note and I think you've had our ECDEV staff on to talk about this there isn't a development uh, today or in the last number of years that's occurred in this city that hasn't taken advantage of one of our incentive packages. So we're still at the point where we're incentivizing these projects to the development community. It's not like Toronto where we're seeing you know developers trip over themselves in terms of properties that have come available on the market, whether it's in Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, or elsewhere. Hamilton's still a unique market, and so while we've seen those price uh, prices go up and we've seen rents correspondingly go up, uh, we're not at a point yet where we can start to force the development community to build some of those things in, although the legislation has been developed and we're now starting to implement it. So it's it's just a matter of time. I'm just not certain when that pendulum reaches a point where we'd say, okay, now's the, now's the time where we're going to start to see some leverage from the private sector because the public sector can't do it on its own. There's but, the, no but there's another problem that you need to face, and I, I'm going to get all of you to comment on this. So I'm going to start with you because mm-hmm. it's your phone that's going to ring. Because you, all the years you've been on council, I know you've faced this in innumerable times. Yep. Stigma. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you do get a project. You do get some things going on. And immediately the phone starts ringing in the counselor's office for that ward saying, we don't want that kind of thing around our neighborhood. Yep. We don't want those people. They don't look after their property. There's crime there. They're, they're loud. They're, they're different. We don't want that. How do you overcome that? Uh, because you've seen the successes in other yep. parts of the world and other cities that have done that. And, and the, the idea of social housing still has this stigma in, in many circles right now. Uh, and it gets pushed back. And, and, and as a result, we start falling behind. Other cities have seemed to do that. How do we get that sort of progress and that sort of open mind in this here? Well, it's about education. I mean, I, I as a boy, I lived in Oreo Crescent. And so I know that if you, you know, you're back in Oreo Crescent in 1975, when I was there, everyone was on social assistance. And so most of the local housing providers now uh, are trying to create a mix within their development mm-hmm. types. And so Oriel is an example where we do mar- offer market rent now. So we have uh, people of different socioeconomic status living amongst each other within a complex. New developments, um, where are, that's the goal in terms of having a mix. Sometimes it's 60-40, 70-30 in terms of affordable versus market. And I think we've seen, Bill, over over the years, as Hamilton continues to change, the community's changing. And so as I attended those um, North End sessions on the future of Hamilton's waterfront, there were people, dozens of them, attending those meetings insisting that we have mixed developments. And they were pushing the city to develop more affordable housing in those neighborhoods uh, than we see today. That's almost the reverse of what you faced when you started on council. 10, 15 years ago, it would be the reverse. That room would have been packed full of people saying, we don't want these people, we don't want these units, you should be putting it somewhere else. And now we're seeing the reverse. And so I think there's more of an acceptance now in Hamilton in almost all parts. You're seeing that on council openly. Councillors are saying, I need affordable housing in my neighborhood or in my ward, and I'm looking for opportunities for housing services to help me with those projects. I think we've done a good job of educating people and bringing people together at a very hyper-local level in neighbourhoods, and that certainly has added to that work through the Neighbourhood Action Strategy. Um, You know, the pendulum is swinging in an interesting way. I was at a Beasley Neighbourhood Association meeting two weeks ago. Well, actually, it's four weeks ago now. And uh, Neighbourhood Association meetings are made up, you know, primarily of residents living in that particular neighbourhood. Beasley Neighbourhood has had a certain stigma attached to it, but it is certainly one of the neighbourhoods that's evolving quite quickly. Um, Around that table, there was three developers who were pitching $100 million in development projects to those residents in that neighborhood. And those residents are now sort of tasked with the notion of, okay, how are we going to make this work in our neighborhood? And they had lots of questions about housing affordability, sizes of units. Um, There are a lot of um, family-friendly folks around the table in that neighborhood. They want to keep options for families living in the downtown. And uh, so they had some really tough questions for those developers and I think we are at a point now where tools like inclusionary zoning are necessary to come into play when that kind of pressure is put on residents in that particular neighborhood. Part of that is realization though isn't it Sean when you look at what's going on is like uh, people have this preconceived idea that, uh, that that poverty is something that happens to somebody else and we, we don't want to bring that in here it's, it's like it's an infectious disease uh, and, and as opposed to you know I, I can remember you know in, well I mentioned Ancaster earlier but other areas as well people don't seem to understand that it's everywhere it could be the guy who's living next door to you it's 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 not something that you can say well that's how people that are poor dress or that's how they walk you don't know what's going on in their lives. 
You don't. Uh, you're right, Bill. And, and Councillor Collins said it's, it is about education. I'll give you an example. So our men's shelter is located on James Street. And James Street is one of those sort of budding areas in the city that is a wonderful place to go. So we have at any given time 58 guys that are st- staying with us, living communally with one another. But they share the street with everybody who comes to visit. So if you go to an art crawl, you are walking side by side with an individual who is experiencing, like you say, uh, poverty. They don't have a place to stay. They don't have as much money as the person next to them. But you can't tell. You're as safe on James Street as you are at the Lime Ridge Mall or as you are in, in Ancaster or anywhere else in the city. It, it is about education and it is about awareness. Uh, individuals are all experiencing different things, but our neighborhood uh, on James Street is a is a wonderful example of of that leading question that you had. You just you can't tell. It is all around you, but it isn't bad. It's good, and and, and the revitalization you see in in Hamilton is an example of that. You can be surrounded by people from all different types, all economic classes, and feel as safe and as comfortable and as at home as you would anywhere else. Well, and the reality here is there, but for the grace of God. I mean, you know, some of these people that you just look at and say, "Well, yeah, there's some guy that was at the at the hot. He was at the shelter there. Uh, that person was probably gainfully employed a while ago. This this idea that this is generational and people are born into it and stay in it and 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 it's it's its own little subculture is is really something that we have to get over. You're right, and uh, you know, so to that we see. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, changes in ha- the age of the people that are staying at shelter. But you see individuals that are in their 20s. The average age of a guy uh, that stays with us now is about 44 years old. Uh, so you have people, uh, you know, on both sides of that, um, you know, while they do get older, there are plenty of guys that are coming through that are younger. And again, employed, employable, absolutely. You know, but... I do want to challenge you, though, a little bit because there is intergenerational poverty that does exist in the city, and certainly we see it. And I know that, uh, you know, I think I've I've talked in front of council, particularly around uh, women who experience homelessness, and that's where we really see it because uh, women experience uh, homelessness uh, differently. Um, They're often housed precariously. They sometimes stay in relationships where... um, you know, other they may be making bad choices in that relationship. So, and we have seen that intergenerational pull um, happen. You know, and until we start talking more about poverty and this relationship between income and affordable housing and things like this, and really think about how, again, as Chad mentioned, pulling the private sector in to be a responsible partner for some of this stuff, we're not going to get any movement. But uh, I see this time of regeneration, renaissance, as an opportunity to maybe put pressure on the private sector folks to say to them, look, you want to come and live in our city, then, you know, there's going to be a price to pay. We're a city that cares very, very deeply about every single individual in this community. And this council has proven time and time again that when push comes to shove, they make tough decisions to make sure that uh, that people remain safe and they, they remain uh, well housed or they remain to have some dignity in their life. So, you know, this to me is a bit of a message. It, it is a, an election year coming up, and I know Tom and I will be talking about that a little bit more in the future. What does that mean? So it is a time of regeneration and opportunity. It's also a very important time to raise the voices and help those who don't have a voice in this as well. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. So much more to discuss. But uh, thank you all for coming in here today and for the great work that you guys are doing. It's greatly Thanks, appreciated. Thank you. thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.